Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, here we go. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14 as we begin a series today on the second coming of Jesus. You know, very early in my time here, I was asked this, when are you going to teach on this? Pastor, when are we going to hear about Revelation? When are we going to hear about the second coming of Jesus? So six years later, a lot of you are finally going to get your requests granted. Uh, I do think it's time. In fact, I think, and you're going to hear why over the next several weeks and months, uh, that I think this is the most appropriate time, at least since I've been here, to begin emphasizing this particular teaching of Scripture. A lot of people have strong interest in this subject. It fascinates people, doesn't it? And, and most of that is healthy. We, we need to be fascinated by it. We need a sense of wonder and hope and expectation when it comes to the fact that there is a moment coming when the eastern sky is going to literally split and the Son of God is going to literally return. I'm excited about bringing that up to you today. I'm excited about spending the next several weeks talking about it, but not just his return, but the ushering in of a whole new order, a level of existence that's far greater than anything you or I have ever experienced in our lives. But it's also happening up against the backdrop of 2,000 years of Christian history and a lot of ways in which followers of Jesus have gotten this wrong. And so what we have to do over the next nine weeks is navigate between those two poles. Because over the centuries, sometimes that fascination is has turned into an unhealthy obsession with all things prophetic. This begins as, as early, really, as the second century. There was a group of people who called themselves the Montanists. They believed that they had received special revelation from God telling them that Jesus was going to return to a, a village called Pepuza in the Phrygian region of Asia Minor. Of course, we're all still here, so I'm not sure what happened to their followers, but I would imagine, like a lot of other false prophecies that get uttered and never come to pass, there was probably some spiritual carnage there. Fast forward to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, and, and we're going to find two characters, Hans Hutt. Uh, one such pastor who predicted that Jesus would return on the day of Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday, 1528, and he would begin to gather 144,000 of his elect saints. Melchior Hoffman, one of his colleagues, set a different date. He said, Jesus isn't going to return in 1528. That's, that's wrong. He's going to return in 1534. Both men died in prison, their prophecies unfulfilled, and their disciples disillusioned. And that's just sort of a vicious cycle that's repeated itself throughout the history of the church. So if we fast forward to the modern day, somewhere in my library at home, you're going to find a book written by a guy named Edgar Wisnett. The title is 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. I think I'm using it to level a shelf right now. Uh, I think that's probably what it's for. Some of you know the name Hal Lindsey. Great sensationalist teacher, not a Bible teacher, a sensationalist teacher. His uh, book, The Late Great Planet Earth, captured the attention of millions of Christians with all these exaggerated claims regarding everything from the correlation of Scripture to current world events to the identity of the Antichrist. And then, of course, most people have read, I've certainly read, I found it riveting reading. It's one of the few fiction series that I read. Tim LaHaye's infamous Left Behind series still sells 
pretty well today. And so, you, well, well, do you think that's good or do you think that's bad, Pastor? Well, it kind of depends. It's great as long as you remember it's fiction. It's good as long as you remember not, there's a lot of stuff in there that's speculated, that's teased out from what the scriptures actually said. Don't read Tim LaHaye like you're reading the Apostle Paul, okay? And if you won't, then everything will probably be fine. Of course, the, probably the most recent was about 10 years ago. There was a guy named Harold Camping that predicted Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. It took most of his followers until May the 23rd, apparently, to realize we're all still here. And it was at that point that Camping did not recant. He did not say, I'm sorry. He did not say I was wrong. He did not step down from ministry, which when you're a false prophet and your prophecy doesn't come true, that's actually what you should do. Instead, he's changed and adjusted his prophecy, stating that the 21st had been a spiritual return of Jesus. By the way, you know who else said that? The Jehovah's Witnesses in 1911. So with that background and history understood, there are very likely two groups of people. I love all of you, but, but there's, there are probably two significant groups of people in front of me that I'm most concerned for and that I, I mean, I love all of you. I, I want you to get some hope out of everything that I'm going to be describing over the next nine weeks from Scripture. But, but there's two groups that I'm aiming at in particular. One of you, uh, one, one of these groups, you still follow the sensationalism. Broken promise after broken promise after unfulfilled prophecy after unfulfilled prophecy, and yet every time the prime minister of Israel has a bad case of gas, you go into the stratosphere emotionally, right? It's like a sugar high for you, right? You get up there and everything, whoa, and you're spinning up, and then all these things you think are going to happen that have been speculated by all these prophets don't happen. And guess what happens? You crash, like your five-year-old grandkids or kids do when they're on a sugar high. And then they crash. And then you go, wow, what happened? I must have realized. And then, I don't know, maybe another six months, maybe another two years, some other sensational kind of thing comes along. And you jump right back on the train because you think the answer is more sugar. All right? I want you to stop experiencing sugar crashes. And I want you to anchor your hope in something that's real. It's something that Scripture actually describes. Then there's another group of you that because of everything that I've just described, when you hear about the return of Jesus, you just kind of harden up and you get cynical and you get jaded. You're one of those people, you look at me and go, Pastor, I didn't even want to show up today. There's so much nonsense around the second coming of Jesus. So many of my friends have just gone bonkers over this with conspiratorial thinking and all kinds of things. I'm telling you, Pastor, if I see another prophecy chart or a picture of another blood moon, I am going to scream. And what I fear for you is that you're going to miss out big time because of all that jaded cynicism. You forget that the apostles call this moment the blessed hope. And if ever we in our lifetimes need some hope, I think it's now, don't you? We need it, and we're going to find it. And so here's the reason I say all of that. Prophecy, as it is contained within the scriptures, it's, it's a lot like a fire, okay? It can warm us. It can power different kinds of things. It can be an energy source for us, or it can burn your house down, right? So fire can be a really good thing. It can be a really bad thing. In fact, we have a, an Eagle Scout here named Jonathan Wilfred, who in the past year completed his Eagle Scout project. It's a phenomenal project, and it blessed us as a church. Also kind of helped him 
get to that level in his, in his scouting life. Uh, and it's out behind our athletic fields, actually. It's this beautiful, large brick fire pit. And when, when we gather around that fire, especially in winter, everybody gets warm and nobody's afraid. You know why? Because the fire is contained, and because it's contained, it's able to do what it was intended to do. And I don't think Jonathan realized it, but as he was building that thing, he was giving us a great object lesson on the way we ought to treat biblical prophecy. You contain it in a way that allows it to do what it was meant to do. Just like fire was, in, was intended to keep us warm, Prophecy was meant to encourage and empower us, but in order for that to happen, it has to be contained. And the right way to contain it is to allow God's word to constrain our understanding of it. That's what we're going to spend the next nine weeks doing together. We're not going to avoid anything. We're going to address head on. We're going to talk about, you got questions about the millennium? We're going to deal with them. Now, in a 30 to 45 minute sermon, I can't teach you everything about the millennium. So we're going to have some resources that we'll refer you to throughout the week. We're going to give away some books. And some of you are probably going to win those books. And you're going to go, yeah, I don't want to know that much about it. Well, guess what? You've got a neighbor that probably will. And all those nerds are going to be hanging out around the table where we're giving the books away. And you can give them a book and make a new friend. And I don't know, maybe they take you out for coffee or something. So we're going to have some giveaways. We're going to have some reference points off to areas where we wouldn't have time in a venue like this to, to cover absolutely everything. But we're going to seek to answer some of those questions. Yes, we're going to deal with the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast and, and all of that, how world history correlates to biblical prophecy. But here's the thing we're going to learn in a nutshell. This is the purpose of prophecy. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, Therefore, after giving the Thessalonian church this long drawn out, detailed map of the future. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. So the, perfect, the purpose of prophecy is not speculation. Well, I wonder if it's this. Well, I wonder if it's that. Well, yeah. well you know, there's metal in the vaccine. Well, you know, they're just barcoding everybody now. Well, you know, there's just doing everything. Shh. <laughs> That's not the purpose. It's not. The purpose is not speculation. It's not sensationalism. It's not stringing together every detail of how history is going to come to a close. Some of you want to know everything and you haven't read enough of the Bible to understand God doesn't intend for you to know everything. He doesn't. That's not the purpose for this. The purpose is encouragement, it's remembrance, it's redirection to the truth that this fallen world that we now inhabit is not all that there is. Another world is coming. Another reality. And today, we start with the straightforward words of Jesus about that next world. Now, here's the interesting thing. These words come right after a warning to Jesus' disciples about some hard times ahead. All, all of chapter 13 is basically, look, one of you is going to betray me. Judgment is coming. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be a lot of things that confuse you. You've been wanting me to set up the kingdom right now. Nope, my kingdom is not of this world. It comes later. Uh, and so all of these things are happening that are going to be a, a great surprise to you. Oh, and by the way, Peter, I know you've been talking big and bad, but you're going to be the lead denier. That day's coming inside of this week. And then in the very same breath, Sometimes chapter and verse divisions can be really handy when you're trying to reference scripture, but sometimes th those chapter verse divisions can get in the way because you forget this really isn't a new chapter. It's a continuation of thought. It is in the same breath where he describes all of that trouble and tribulation 
where he begins what we know as chapter 14, verse 1, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Some stuff's coming, but I do not intend for you to live with a troubled heart. No matter what is going on in your present, your hearts can be at peace when you think about the future. This is the purpose of every teaching we're going to examine about Jesus' return. You don't have to live with a troubled heart. I wonder how many troubled hearts I got in front of me this morning. I wonder how many troubled hearts are watching me from home right now. I wonder how much fear and how much angst and how much unnecessary, unrighteous anger and how much just all just, just spun up your, your own blood pressure medicine right now that you probably may not even go to your doctor and let them tell you that you don't need it. But, but maybe a big part of it is you just stay all strung up, strung out all the time, Right? Don't live with a troubled heart. Let me give you three emphases in Jesus' words here as we just sort of scratch the surface to begin this study this morning. Number one, the second coming has a purpose. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The word for troubled here means to be thrown into confusion, to cause an uproar, or to be constantly agitated. In other words, if you approach biblical prophecy, let me just go and put it this way. If you approach any part of your faith in a way that when you are done, you are frightened or confused or agitated or growing in anger or hatred toward other people or your heart is in an uproar, you are doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And you are likely listening to teachers who don't know what they're doing. Jesus predicted I'm going to be betrayed, denied, abandoned, tried by a kangaroo court. There's all manner of chaos coming. Don't let it get to you. Don't don't let it get to you. So much of what passes for prophetic teaching these days is speculative. It's not based on clear biblical teaching. It's based on multiple layers of assumption that started with Scripture, but by the time you get done with your speculation, you're so far out in left field, it might or it might not be, but we spend so much time focusing on this, we forget that our assurance comes from this. It comes from what we know, what we know. And you spend hours and hours trying to figure out things you don't know. Real prophetic teaching that is grounded in Scripture is based on what you can know. And Jesus says here, don't let your heart be troubled. You need to rest in that. Don't let your heart be troubled, and we can rest if we believe also in him. This is the purpose of it. Not just I'm coming back, but even in that interim period, you need to believe in God, and you need to believe also in me. We live in a context where even in the church, we're encouraged too often to focus way too much on the present, especially when there's troubled times. We, we, we don't like trouble, do we? I mean, that, in a sense, it's because we're normal. Ask me if I would rather have a soft mattress or somebody hit me upside the head with a two-by-four. I don't have to think very long to make that choice, all right? We're normal. If you want the two-by-four, there's something wrong with you, and we need to have counseling on another level, you know, desiring comfort, not wanting pain. That's, I get all of that, but so often we forget that suffering is part of the Christian experience, especially in the West. Look at what happened to Jesus do we, how often do we forget his words that a disciple is not above his teacher? 
Whatever they did to me, they're going to do to you. Whatever they said about me, they're going to say about you. Trouble is coming, and we look to too quick a release, whether it's from actual sort of embodied evil, people that would come against you, people that would come against the church, or, or whether it's just the natural evil of like the course of a fallen world that sometimes leads to death. There was a very tragic story that came out of Redding, California just a couple of years ago. A two-year-old girl named Olive who stopped breathing in the middle of the night, and she died suddenly. Now, I've been pastored to way, way too many parents who've gone through that. I've got three children of my own. I have, God, by God's grace, never had to go through anything like that, and I hope I never do, and I pray the same for all of you. But we live in a fallen world, don't we? And sometimes parents have to bury their children. Sometimes that, that happens, and it is absolutely excruciating when that moment comes, and, and the church has an exquisite important task in that moment and it's to come around that grieving father and mother and it is to mourn with those who mourn and it is yes to provide them hope in Christ but to walk with them through every stage of the grief process. The church in question in this situation rather than come around the family for comfort hundreds of church members at the urging of their pastor gathered in a meeting around the remains of this little girl and jumped up and down and hooped and hollered asking God to raise her from the dead. Now, I don't doubt their sincerity. I, I don't doubt it at all. But folks, we live in a fallen world. Jesus has not promised us to make everything right. Do I believe God heals? He does. Our elders, all you got to do is call us. We'll come around you. We'll lay hands on you. We will obey what James tells us to do because that's what the Word of God says. Do I believe that God physically and miraculously heals as a result of those kinds of actions? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I've seen it happen. But I've also seen God produce another kind of healing out of those moments. And folks, sometimes we can forget in the middle of our own grief and suffering that there is no greater resurrection than to suddenly find yourself, as this little girl did, in the presence of the one who is the resurrection and the life. The grief is real. It's excruciating. And you never get over that as a parent. And your only hope in that moment is not that you will get your child back, but that your child is now in the presence of the only one who could ever love them more than you do. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of Jesus. In this church, thankfully, they came to their senses. Took them four or five days of exacerbating the pain of this family, but they finally did it. Then a little more than a year ago, when we were all being good patriots by staying home, you remember those days? Another pastor led a prayer service in which he declared COVID-19 done and over and then he blew a raspberry at the virus. Now, 500,000 plus COVID deaths later, you'd think folks would recognize a false prophet when they see one. But I, I, I describe those moments for you because they call us toward a temporary hope. Right? This was the message of Hananiah, by the way. Jeremiah told the people when they went into exile, you better get a mortgage because we're going to be here. While Hananiah, though, was the one attracting all the crowds because you know what he was telling them? In two years, we're going to be back in Jerusalem. We're going to get our temple back. We're going to be. It was all about the temporary world. I want my normal back. 
Well, a prophet that tells you you can get your normal back is the kind of prophet that attracts a lot of attention and sells a lot of books. But he's not the kind of prophet that's going to tell you the truth or ultimately bring healing to your soul. Prophecy calls you to the future. It doesn't promise you or me anything in this present world, but here's what it does say. No matter what happens to you, you keep on believing in God and you keep on believing in me. In other words, Jesus is encouraging us in light of the second coming to have this posture. Look at Psalm 73. The psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Powerful words coming from a suffering saint who has one hope, and it ain't got nothing to do with what's around him, what he sees, what he hears, what his senses can pick up. It is a hope of another world. It is the hope of another reality that's coming. Brothers and sisters, what holds us in this world is not that temporary reality around us. It's the ultimate reality above us that will one day, we believe in faith, overwhelm this whole planet. You believe in God? Believe also in me. The way to an untroubled heart is belief in Jesus no matter what. And everything God has revealed to you and me about the second coming, it has that goal in mind. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let the darkness engulf you. Don't let the chaos scare you. Yes, it is real. And no, I'm not bringing an end to all of it. But you just keep believing. That's the purpose of the teaching on the second coming. And in order to fulfill that purpose, the second coming also has a primary focus. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Sometimes words from the Scripture, they're all inspired. But every once in a while, have you noticed how when you're reading the Bible, there's a select few that will just kind of jump off the page? and jumpstart your heart, look at those four words again. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. There is a place, there's an actual place where we will dwell together with Jesus. I will come again. And it's important to get your focus right here. Back in the, way, way back in the 5th century, the theologian Jerome translated the Bible from its original Greek and Hebrew into the Latin language. That was sort of the lingua franca of the whole Western world. So it only made sense. We'll translate this into Latin and thereby make it available to any literate person in the Western world. And for the next 1,000 years, Latin became the primary and in some cases the only translation available. And the Latin word that translates the Greek text here for rooms or dwelling places, it's the Latin phrase mansiones. And we get our word mansion from that etymological root. So by the time of the authorized version, King James Version 1611, the switch to the English word mansion, it just kind of seemed only natural. But since then, that word's been infused into popular culture. All right, so there's an old song that sings about having a mansion just over the hilltop. All of this based on a Western economic notion that comings to Jesus means that both in this world and the next one, you're going to be financially and otherwise tangibly prosperous. A far better, I think, understanding of Jesus' meaning here comes from connecting what he says to the analogy he's communicating. 
And in this case, that analogy is a picture of the first century Jewish wedding. So let's talk about Jewish weddings for a moment. A man and a woman fall in love, or it's an arranged marriage, and they have to learn love. Either way, in the process, they become betrothed. They're now engaged. There's going to be a wedding. But what immediately happens once that betrothal takes place, there's a brief little ceremony, and then the groom leaves the bride. He will not see her again until the wedding. He will leave the bride and her family for his own father's house, and he's going to begin building a home for his soon-to-be bride. Usually it took the form in the first century of an annex that was added on to the family home so that the son and the new daughter-in-law could care for. Uh, you, you didn't have retirement homes back in the first century, so somebody's got to care for mom and dad uh, in all those things. And so the bride and her attendants, if you can imagine this, ladies, they set no wedding date, but they were ready. Can you imagine that? Like in today's world where... Some things just puzzle me, and I know part of it's just my own reference point, so I'm not saying anybody's in sin. I'm just saying I don't understand. People dropped $7,500 to rent a barn. Did you know that? Like, and I know some of you are like, yeah, Rainy, and you got a daughter. Yeah, don't remind me. Like, there, there are some things I just, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I don't understand, right? But can you imagine going to the barn and saying, I need this, and they say, for when? And you ladies say, I don't know, whenever my husband gets back. I don't know. All right? That was the arrangement. But, but the hope wasn't in the flowers of the photographer or that everything's going to be just right or that when the shoes got dyed, they would all be exactly the same hue. It wasn't. The hope was in my husband is going to return. The groom is going to come back. So they had to always be ready. In fact, there's a whole parable about this in, in Matthew 25. There's this scenario where Jesus describes 10 virgins, five wise and five foolish. And the distinguishing mark between the two was whether they had the requisite oil and were ready for the return of the bridegroom because he could come suddenly in the evening when you don't expect it. Turns out at the end of the parable, that's exactly what he did because once this annex is completed, and here's the key, you get engaged, you go away, back to your father, you build the annex. When the annex is done, the father looks at the son and says, go get your bride. That's what's coming. Jesus says, that's what's happening. Who, who here remembers their honeymoon? I do. This coming Friday, it will be 27 years since we started that honeymoon. And that woman is still with me, bless her heart. The night of our rehearsal dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't be mad, honey. I didn't do that. So the night, the night of our rehearsal dinner, her cousin Barry walked up to me with a $100 bill, and he gave it to me. And he said, I love y'all. Don't bring a penny of it back. I know you're going to have bills to pay and all that. We'll help with that, too, if you want it. Go have a good time on your honeymoon. We had three other extended relatives on both sides of the family do the same thing. And so by the end of the night, I had four Benjamin Franklins in my pocket. And y'all don't understand, this is 1994, okay? And I was a preacher boy. I was still in undergraduate studies. I was, so I was studying. I was working part-time on a church staff. And I was building furniture for a living. And we didn't, neither one of us had squat. I don't know why she married me, but it wasn't for my money. I can tell you that. We didn't have squat. So I got four $100 bills. I feel like the richest man on earth. I ate steak four times during my honeymoon. It was amazing. 
And then after that honeymoon, which was somewhat glamorous, we came home, home being a 600-square-foot, one-bedroom house that she and I had renovated as a way of, instead of paying the first three months' rent, we're going to do some renovations here for the landlord because prior to it being a, a place where people live, it was an office for, an, for a fuel oil company. I am not making this up. I go out on the front porch every morning, look to the right and see cows and smell cows, and look to the left and see big old oil tankers and smell petroleum. And then I would drink my coffee. That's what we spent the first 18 months of our marriage in that little bitty shoebox. Then we upgraded to a double-wide trailer. And that was, that was fun for a couple of years. And then the Lord called us to seminary. And so now we're back into this little 800-square-foot apartment in Louisville that it, it was all Section 8 housing because none of us have any money. And all of the seminary students that live there affectionately referred to it as the seminary slums. That, that's what we called it. But you know what mattered? I'm talking the glamour of the honeymoon and being able to eat steak four nights and then coming back to a shoebox and then moving into a double wide and then back to an apartment where we're just, you know, trying to figure it out. There was a Korean family that lived below us. Two-bedroom apartment, 14 people living in it. And, and, and I'm telling you, they were great. They, we could learn some things from our Korean brothers and sisters about how to support each other. But, but Grandpa would go out every morning with empty trash bags and come back with full trash bags of aluminum cans. The problem was... On Saturday morning, starting about 7 o'clock, you know what they were doing? Right underneath us. <laughs> right? Because they're taking it to be recycled. So they get money for that. Right? So living through all of that, you know what mattered? That woman and I were together. That's what mattered. That's what mattered. Brothers and sisters, the emphasis here is not on mansions or rooms it's on many. The joy of the second coming doesn't come from what kind of furniture you will have in your mansion. It comes from the fact that you and I will be together with Jesus in his glorious presence, and it will never, ever, ever end. And Jesus says, I'm going away to make it ready. Do you understand what that means? That means that right now, as I am preaching to you, and you are sitting there at this very moment, Jesus is preparing those places where you and I are one day going to dwell. And when he is done making all of that room, the Father will look at the Son and say, go get your bride. That's our blessed hope. He's coming back for us. And we will forever be in each other's presence. You're like... I'm not so sure. All that will be mitigated by the fact that we'll be in his. Amen. He'll straighten everything out. He'll straighten everything out. Now, that ought to send body chills into you in light of the, those words, those four words I, I referenced earlier, I will come again. It, the New Testament contains 318 allusions or, or direct references to the Lord's return. Now, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So our loved ones who followed Jesus and who died are at this moment in the Lord's presence. What Jesus is talking about here is another day beyond that, when we will be with Jesus and them in the Lord's place. The, the term that Bible scholars use for this is the intermediate state, and I have yet to find a better sort of synopsis of that than from the Princeton theologian Charles Hodge, who says the souls of believers are 
at their death made perfect in holiness and to immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. In other words, there's now a separation of the material from the immaterial, okay? Or as uh, one preacher once very clumsily said in a, in a, a funeral service with the body in front of him, listen, the, what you're looking at right now is just the shell. The nut is in heaven. So maybe think of it that way. Think of it that way. But it's also why one of my favorite passages to read at the graveside are Paul's words to Thessalonica, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The primary focus of the second coming is simple. Jesus is coming to claim his bride. The focus is Jesus. So eschatology, that's the 10-cent word for the second coming. It has a purpose, and it has a primary focus, and then it prescribes a path for us. In light of this reality, here's what we read in verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas doesn't understand because he's still focused on a place. Oh, maybe he's trying to figure out what kind of furniture he's going to have. So Jesus responds, I am the way. Now, this is one of the I am statements that we see in John's gospel. I'll give you just kind of a broad reference point here. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the the good shepherd in John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. And in John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am, which is sort of sounds like God's word to Moses in Exodus, doesn't it? God said to Moses in Exodus three fourteen, I am who I am. Here's the, here's the point. Do you really want this future? Because if you do, it is evidenced in the fact that more than anything else in this world, you want Jesus. If there's something ahead of Jesus in this world, or if Jesus is just sort of one little category of your life, or if Jesus is there to be the power source to plug in so that you can live your best life now or wash your face or whatever the latest nonsense is, if Jesus is not the overall point, you need to ask yourself, whether this is really something you hope for, because when we get there, it is all Jesus, all of it. And C.S. Lewis reminds us in his book, The Problem of Pain, that that really is what we were created for. He says, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul the incommunicable, unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. Jesus says, you want heaven? I can take you there. I don't just know the way, I am the way. I don't just know the destination, I built the road. 
And remember who he's communicating with here again. These men would, in very short order, see this one who has just said to them, I am the way, hanging impotent on a cross. They're going to see this one who's just told them, I am the truth, surrounded and destroyed by gossip and slander and the lies of others who had their own agendas and were seeking to kill him. This one who said, I am the life, would in a matter of hours have his dead body placed in a borrowed tomb. In other words, Jesus spoke these words to troubled men who were living in troubled times. Does that sound familiar? Are you troubled? What he spoke, though, was, it was good medicine for their hearts. R. Kent Hughes calls ours the cardiac age. He says there's a lot of troubled hearts today. And it's understandable why there would be so many troubled hearts. Opioid addiction, corruption, polarization, escalating violence here and around the world, all kinds of increasing chaos, it seems. And after Jesus spoke these words, probably good for us to remember this too, it got worse before it got better. But it did get better. Their faith was tested. Ours will be too. A disciple is not above his teacher. But don't be troubled. Let not your heart, don't live in a constant state of uproar or outrage. Don't be thrown into confusion about things around you that you don't understand or don't know or cannot control. The same Jesus who raised from the dead said, I will come again. That's your hope and mine. It's the only hope you have. I will come again. A day is coming. What are we talking about for the next nine weeks in summary? That. A day is coming. A place is being prepared right now. It's just as real as this old boy standing here in front of you right now. It's more real than I am. And I am beyond excited to spend the next summer and early fall weeks sharing with you more about that moment. But even more than that, I want you to be ready. I was talking with one of our first responders on Friday about what it might look like to provide some support to firefighters, police officers, others that are, you know, they're already dealing with the worst of society, and then you put COVID and everything else we've all been made to endure on top of that, and we're seeing them commit suicide in larger numbers. We're seeing them walk off the job in larger numbers. And what, what can happen so that we might encourage them? And this first responder, she looked at me, and she said, you know, I think that's, that's part of it is just the unpredictability of life is just exponentially grown, and we realize more and more any of us could go at any time, which was my opportunity to say, yeah, I understand that. And my job is to ask people if they're ready. Are you? A day is coming. A day is coming. If you don't leave this world first, he will come to this world. Are you ready? Here's the hope. If you turn from your sins, you put your faith in Jesus. You do not have to live with a troubled heart. Let's pray. Lord, there is such great hope in your word. And so often, we, including me, 
are tempted to look at the world around us more than we look at the hope you provide. And we forget in those times that that hope doesn't cancel out the present trouble. It gives us a means to look beyond it and a way in which to live that honors you and glorifies you. So, Father, forgive us for speculation. Forgive us for hopelessness. Forgive us for times when life gets out of whack and we just spin up into all kinds of turmoil. And Lord, help us. Help our unbelief by pointing us to what we're going to be looking at over the next nine weeks. We thank you for the promise, for the hope, for the love, all wrapped up in those four simple words, I will come again. So Father, may that hope be ours. May your Holy Spirit grant it. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's never trusted you, never put your faith, their faith in your death and resurrection for their sins, Lord, may you lead them to the foot of the cross this morning and grant us the privilege and the opportunity of sharing with them what it means to follow Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.